all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. The Lime conversation in this country is an invitation for physicians to lean into a connection to allow our clinical empathy to enter that space, to give it light, and to make room for it, and to connect. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us almost every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 259 with Dr. Crystal Barnwell, who spoke at the Lime Mind Conference in New York City back in 2019. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Miss Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn three main things. The factors that keep Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases underreported in the South, the difficulties of treating Lyme disease in the South, and the holistic approach Dr. Barnwell advocates to treat people with un- or misdiagnosed Lyme disease. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout-out to all you Lyme ninjas out there. You're the reason we have more than half a million downloads. Aurora, yes, exactly. We need a woohoo button. <laughs> Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. Like this past week, we've had listeners tune in from Moscow, Russia to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and from Sydney, Australia to San Antonio, Texas. Thanks, Aurora. And tell us a little bit more about this week's guest. Well, I should say not she's a guest. She was a speaker at the Lime Mine. So about this week's subject, what's the right word? Speaker. Just Let's just say speaker. She is just a speaker, but not just a speaker. She was an amazing speaker. She was. Anyway, this is Dr. Crystal Barnwell, and she has an amazing story to tell about treating Lyme disease in the southern states. Dr. Crystal Barnwell is an integrative physician 
the clinical director of the Danio Medical Group in Atlanta, Georgia, and the treasurer of ILADS. She focuses her clinical expertise on the gut microbiome, autoimmune, and neurogenitive, and environmental challenges for clients with complex and chronic illnesses. All right, Aurora, here is the Lyme Mind Conference presentation by Dr. Crystal Barnwell. Good morning. My name is Dr. Crystal Barnwell. It is an honor to be with you here today. And I'd like to start off with a question. Is Lyme disease visible in the North and invisible in the South? Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? Henry David Thoreau. On this slide, we have a map of the United States from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. And each of those dots represents a case of confirmed Lyme disease. Looking at this map, all of the cases of sick patients are in the Northeast and in that Lake Michigan area, the corridor. What makes those people sick and the rest of the country fairly well? Is it a different deer? The deer that's known to be associated with Lyme disease in this country is the white-tailed deer. The South has five species of deer and the, the heaviest concentration of deer in the United States. Perhaps it's the variety of hosts, the small distributor species that pick up these ticks from the tick taxi deer population. And at this time of year, mice, squirrels, chipmunks deliver them to our front door to Fido and our cats. But the Southeast has the broadest group of distributor species in the country. Perhaps it's the Borrelia species that defy the Western blot testing, and that could be a possibility because there are a large group of Borrelia pathogens that create human disease, and Borrelia burgdorferi, Sinsulata group, strain 31, is where the last 40 years of testing have centered the whole conversation about Lyme disease. Perhaps it's the way Southern Lyme disease looks. And maybe we lack that characteristic EM rash that everyone's talked about, the bull's eye. But all of the literature and most of the scientific evidence in this country that describes Lyme patients will immediately recapitulate to the idea that less than 50% of the patients are reporting a rash. So finally, maybe it's the ticks. And in the Northeast, the tick is Ixodes scapularis, the deer tick. The map on the left lower screen is a description of 
the tick distribution in this country. And this comes from the Centers for Veterinary Medicine. In the center of the country, we have a light orange pale region. These people are struggling with one major species of tick causing human disease. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I remember as a child, not so long ago, because as you can see, I'm not very old. <laughs> I remember walking my dog, Rex, and if we found one tick, just one tick, we freaked out. Fast forward, now living in this dark region of the country, when I take my kids on a walk with Momo, we have four tick species that we have to be concerned about. Four. Poor Momo. Let's look at this map over here. These are from some really smart research scientists at Columbia who are involved in trying to understanding the environmental factors that are involved in this emergence of tick-borne disease. And in this map, we're dealing with infected ticks, sick ticks. Where you see white, we don't have a large number of sick ticks. Well, that's not the south. Pulling over to the yellow area are the rare tick occurrences where ticks are being sampled and sent, and they're testing positive for Lyme or co-infection illness. The red zones up in the north, again, these represent where most of the ticks are testing very positive. There's an abundance of sick ticks. Looking at this map, it would suggest that these ticks have made a consolidated agreement. We are not going below the Mason-Dixie, and there are people who do that in this country. Mason-Dixon line, all right? So that's interesting. We have a distribution from Maine and Maryland to Michigan. They're traveling. We could agree that they're probably moving a distance, but they don't move south. And yet, going back to our first map, what happened? Most of the ticks started in the Northeast sick. They're distributing, they're clustering, there's more of them, they're more densely positioned, and we have the aggressive fertility of the South driving all of the places where these ticks hide. Nobody's sick. No sick ticks. Primary care. You laughing. I began my life in medicine as a primary care doctor. That was a 15-year interval of seeing patients in Atlanta, Georgia. As I started out in primary care medicine, let me give you Lyme patients, Lyme researchers, an idea of the other side of the stethoscope. Sitting down in a primary care setting, we have the interest of time. How much can we spend with the average patient less than 15 minutes? Money. How quickly do we have to move patients in order to keep the doors open? Then there's the concern of the patients themselves. Thank God. Who's acutely ill? There are two types. The ones that you hasten to the emergency department, they're bleeding or they're missing limbs. And then we have the ones 
who are going to stay in the primary care setting, and we're going to do some of the work of the cold, the sneeze, the snot, and the rash. That's the first section of patients we're dealing with. And then we have our chronically ill patients. And these are patients who present with one, two, or three systems. You don't get more than three com complaints in an office visit. And it is a question of where they need to be referred. Assuming they're referred and the referral physician has done the workup and sent back the consultant letter before the next appointment, one, two, or three positives, that's all you get. If none of those come back abnormal, you are now going into two places. Zoloft and a psychiatric referral, or the land of diagnostic die-off, a reassurance, and me too. Me too. I'm sick. I'm tired too. Complete Care of Georgia was that practice. And I remember, like the doctor who spoke before me, about patients with these weird hypertensions that can't tolerate a half pill of uh, antihypertensive medicine. My patients were 14 to 16 year old males presenting for sports physicals with positive testing results, positive EKGs, all suggesting they're, fi they're fine, there's nothing wrong. And I remember signing off on those sports physical forms like Dr. Dudley, looking back now and asking, were they mischaracterized as well when I had an opportunity to make a difference in a developmental trajectory with a simple question an orthostatic vital sign. The paradigm. Complete care ended, and I found myself next in a paradigm shift. MNOVA stands for Internal Medicine of Northern Virginia, home of doctors Samuel Shore and Ebony Cornish, the people who introduced me to Lyme. This was an environment of sharp elbows and deep purses. It was an environment where, for the first time in my life, patients were not impressed with me listening. They were disinterested and actually paranoid about prednisone and steroid therapy. This was a subsection of patients whose expectation was they would go to their doctor and they would be heard, and at the end of the day, they were going to step away from their diagnostic code because it was absolutely unacceptable to tell them, this is ALS and you're 51 and you're atypical. This is Parkinson's and you will sit down from your corporate job and accept a disability check. First time I'd ever seen this. The expectation that in this environment, at this time in this country, that we had a medicine so exquisite that we could expect patients to heal. And what would that medicine look like? It would look like precision medicine. And it would bring all of the tools together that have been discussed in this room today. And it would require a different kind of physician. That would be a physician that listens. It would be the N of one, 
after listening, engaging like Dr. Liegner, the possibility of the democratization of medicine. Allowing a patient to come in with a study that you put down your stethoscope long enough to engage in a question. Would you give me an opportunity to demonstrate human intelligence and access to your same medical studies and to propose a possibility of healing through access to the tools that your pen writes? Here's another thing, and this is something very, very powerful. This was an environment that had the right deer and the right tick. Danio Group is our southern Lyme-only practice. It is the opus of my life career. And it is the environment that gave me an opportunity to take what I understood when I first began medicine and all of those powerful moments of engaging patients who are too sick, too tired, too marginalized, to stand for themselves and to agree at the end of the day to be the physician who would bring to them the possibilities of hope and healing. What does that require? To agree to never stop learning, to take that process of medical investigation seriously and to enjoy it and to bring it back and to grow and to tear it down when it doesn't work and start again. It is about going to the homes of not the richest, not charging the extra drive to the patient who can't afford it, and to sit in their environments and figure with them what an environmental exposure would be that would keep them from healing while their children are there engaging their sick children and their questions about possibly healing them, engaging them in therapy, when I don't always know the answer. And saying, I don't know the answer. Let's do this together. What do you got? It could be about writing up the way I do the writing of the charts, going over what failed already so that we're not doing that conversation again understanding where they healed and got somewhat better so we can bring those in sooner. And then there's this last ingredient, which I think is about the future of Lyme medicine. And that's it. A Lyme disease physician is a physician who has a patient before them who comes with a set of symptoms a set of symptoms that the physician has heard one time too many in the same cluster. And more importantly, the physician has seen it in patients, but the physician has seen it in him or herself. The Lyme conversation in this country is an invitation for physicians to lean into a connection that not just the patient sick, but that they themselves are sick with Lyme disease. And that decision to allow our clinical empathy 
to enter that space and to reject the fear that would allow us to shut that conversation down, but to give it light and to make room for it and to connect. Thank you. chat for a minute. Thank you so much for being here today. I am so, I'm so grateful. I think I, we met for the first time on the phone a few months back and you, you absolutely wowed me in those conversations. And we spent, we spent so much time talking about what it would be important for this room to hear. And you know, we are in New York City. We are in an extraordinarily diverse, beautiful city. We're also in what's categorized as a Lyme endemic area, which is what you were talking about. Um, I want to go back to the start of your, your presentation. I want to talk about the invisible Lyme disease in the South. Can you talk to me about the, the, um, the endemic zone and why, why you feel, um, beyond, you know, these, these few slides, why you feel that that, that hasn't reached the level of awareness that, that you feel is important? Well, we've gone through the factors that don't really make a difference. So one thing that sticks out, and I could suggest, is that the South is the home of the CDC. And that is where the conversations about who's sick and who's well begin. We have an example of what spirakeet medicine looks like coming out of the CDC. A template was written back in the 40s with the experiment call Tuskegee experiment. And the spirochete disease in this instance was syphilis. And in the writing of that historical journey with the CDC or the Department of Health and Human Services was a group of people with spirochete disease who were at 25. The subjects of an experiment that began like this, one, is there a natural history that we can record by doing this experiment on spirochete patients? And that decision was made, yes, we will proceed with that. And already having a 400-year documented history of untreated syphilis in the room for them to review. Then a year into the study, there was a second report. This was a 2,000-person case control study. And that study went on to say, well, whatever you do, arsenic would probably accelerate, used mildly and intermittently, accelerate the death of a syphilitic patient by 20 to 30%. And there were another 20 years of using arsenic aggressively in this population. So then there was the penicillin that emerged later in the study that would have cured syphilis. And in an experiment that was supposed to be associated with an option to treat, they weren't treated with penicillin. After the 20th year of the study, they were treated with placebo. So this is the CDC handling in the South of syphilis, a spirochete disease. And I think that is a way of understanding why Lyme disease is as it is currently in the South. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, going into the way that you do your practice, I'm, I want, I'm wondering if you can talk about the experience of 
actually going into a patient's home and going into going into their environment and making connections. We talked about this on the phone, and I actually I really loved this. The way that you're able to make connections that you wouldn't make necessarily in your office that help with your diagnosis. Yeah. So the Danio group began as a mobile practice only, and what that meant was entering the home space. Um, we live in the sick south that is both sick and sweaty. So there are water intrusions and trouble with environmental exposures that take the form of mold and mycotoxin illness. And that layered on top of Lyme became one of the key factors that we discovered was keeping people sick and putting together a network of professionals to help them to understand the importance of that was a very eye-opening part of our first years with the practice. Um, I think the food and the social habits came second. Nobody wants the doctor to walk in and look at the alcohol supply and to make assessments or comments. But I think that it's tailing when the children have pink desserts and the adults are snacking on sweets at the table during the interview, it was an opportunity to have a conversation and to do some work around how the South eats, which we know the South eats. <laughs> um, th but there was another thing. I think that the idea of um, one medicine, which is zoonotic disease and the way we interface with animals, the South is a place that hunts. And often in poor Southerners, that food is eaten. And the number of times that we talk about the way to prepare venison. What animal is unacceptable? A six-month-old puppy or kitty is probably not a great animal to have in the home of an ALS in stage Lyme patient because we have the immune issues and those animals being vectors. It was The story is always the tiger and shark that catches the eye, but it's cute little kittens and puppies yeah. that put us at risk when we're talking about Lyme disease. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask one of the questions from the audience. You know, I knew this was going to happen. I lost my glasses a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm really having a hard time reading the confidence monitor. So forgive me. Um, so how effective are, um, deep uh, products in protecting us? Um, do you, do you have an experience with this? And, uh, well, I can go on the, you know, the advice of, um, eyelids that, we get some coverage. It's going to depend on how long between the intervals that we apply it. We have a lot of new technology out there that's not just chemicals. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, there's rhino skin, which is a fabric where you're not exposed to chemicals that can protect you from most bites except the hornet, the wasp, and they're very hot. <laughs> so some difficulty implementing that in the southeast, but up here it probably would be a great idea. Um, DEET can go on the fabric, and there are companies out there that do a great job with multiple wash fabrics that can be used so that you're not having to apply it regularly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what types of co-infections do you see in your practice, and is this, is this something that, that you pay attention to and that you're aware of? Yeah. So, yes, the co-infections are co-infections, and there are a broader cross-section of co-infections in the southeast than what we're dealing with 
in the rest of the country. Mm. Although, as for that, they're all about the same. Yeah. So we see the Babesia, we see the Bartonella, we're dealing more with tularemia, malaria, yeah. and it's a rising vector all over the country. I think it's about the same. We see Ehrlichia is the number one co-infection in the southeast. That's the one that tests positive the most often. But the testing and the suppression of one species expression in the testing when another one is present is all a part of this very dynam dynamic reporting process with the tests. So Ehrlichia is the established species in the south as a dominant co-infection. But when you look at all of the areas, there is a broader number in the southeast. Than Can you talk to me about... As, as you work with these, pa with your patients and in these rural communities, do you have to do much educating about Lyme disease and about these vector-borne illnesses, or are people generally aware? 2015, when I was figuring out what would a Lyme practice look like, I spent a time as a locum's physician traveling around the state of Georgia working in community health care centers. And these are gap keep centers that help to prevent medical deserts. So this is the poorest quadrant of this nation. And what I saw was sick, sick people who were sick in very classic ways with Lyme disease that were miscategorized. So sarcoid, lupus, multiple sclerosis, lots and lots of steroids. Our antibiotic choices were amoxicillin, doxycycline, 14 days on a good day, two days on an average day, and I don't believe in Lyme's disease most days. <laughs> That's a challenge. That's a challenge. And when your choice is Wally World, antibiotic list, in 2015 had seven options. Wally World in 2019 has one option. But we still have an opportunity to treat Lyme with Zoloft, prednisone, and now Haldol, Seroquel, Zyprexa in the healthcare centers when they can't sleep and they're 16 or 15. What does that look like at 21 applying for a job without your teeth in rural America. Where are you going to be at 30? Yeah. yeah. I really like this question. Uh, what, what do you think of the, the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome? I know this gets a, a lot of pushback around and, you know, they, this is, you know, coming from somebody who's naive to the space in a lot of different ways. Um, I will freely admit that to me, the idea of PTLDS and chronic Lyme and um, they start to sound the same. And I'm wondering, I, it's not always clear to me why there's an importance in the distinction. Um, and please, please correct and educate me. I don't mind. So um, post-treatment Lyme assumes that there is a way of treating Lyme that is time-centered. And that timing is dictated by a group of scientists or the physician's pen on the paper and what it usually represents is an uncoupling of your healing and the interval that you're actually going to have access to the possibility of healing with therapeutic tools. 
that requires a prescription. Post-treatment Lyme is one of the hot words in research literature that really, really keeps the South sick. Endemicity is another one of those really powerful words because what does endemicity have when you got it from your mama? Endemic means the areas of the country there are, where people live that are acknowledged as sick. What would that have to do if your mother gave birth to you in New Jersey and you found yourself growing up sick in Alabama? So when research scientists put post-treatment Lyme disease, patients acknowledged with Lyme disease living in areas where there are ticks who made them sick, you have eliminated the South. When you go on to talk about endemicity, and so Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness and the ways that uh, there's a discounting of the human experience. When you say uh, most of the symptoms will resolve, how many people have Lyme disease in the room? Think, where did all of your symptoms go away where you want a knucklehead writing in their report that your symptoms went away? When did that happen? Was it after you stopped sweating and the headache resolved? Or was it okay after you were having the neurologic tingling and you were jerking and twitching? Or was it when the headaches finally stopped? How about this one? When you finally got all of the memory you had back to the point where you first described yourself as sick, when did that happen in the treatment course? Because when we read the medical literature and scientists and doctors are trying to meet in these NIH publications, Every time a researcher puts on that paper and uh, these other symptoms resolved, I think to myself, oh, their fertility came back. Maybe they grew all their hair. Was it their period they focused on? Because they asked for about 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. What about three years later when they were told you have breast cancer? Or 20 years later when they were sitting in their diaper when they should have been in a boardroom, meeting the peak of their career? Post-treatment Lyme is a part of that process. And we really need to stop it. What really struck me was when Dr. Barnwell told the story of the difference between her patients in Atlanta and her patients in Northern Virginia, and how those patients in Northern Virginia just wouldn't accept uh, an untreatable diagnosis, and how she used that story to emphasize the importance of, uh, she, she called it the democratization of information. And I guess that kind of struck me because, you know, that's kind of what we do. It not, is. Yeah, not to pat ourselves on the back too much. Well, just a little bit. <laughs> and it reminds me also of the three phases of the Lyme journey, and the first being reboot, and the second resolve, and third restore. So really, that's rebooting. So it's rebooting your understanding of Lyme disease, what can be done, what you should have to live with, what you shouldn't. It's kind of the first mode. And really, listening to podcasts like Lyme Ninja Radio and all the other great information out there can help you do that. So three cheers for rebooting and your first phase of the Lyme journey. Because if you just give up, 
it's right. You got to reboot that. You got to bring everything back online. Your hope, your fight, uh, your vision relationship for the f- with your future. doctor. Yeah, all that stuff. That's the reboot. You got you got to reboot before you can begin to move forward. And if you'd like a graphic or the organizer of our roadmap, our Lyme disease roadmap, visit our website www.limeninjaradio.com and you will find it there in the extra section. Do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at limeninjaradio.com. And if you're still listening, you're either a glutton for punishment or you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio. Either way, hit the subscribe button and that way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, share this podcast with a friend. But if you really, really like what we're doing... Do us a big favor and scroll to the bottom of your podcast app and leave us a review like TBD Warrior did last week. He said, This podcast helped me immensely in my Lyme journey. When I was newly diagnosed and seeking information, listening was about all I could manage due to fatigue and brain fog. Reading anything took too much effort. As I progressed to better health, I continued to educate myself via the informative interviews with guests. Thank you, TBD Warrior. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know ninjas are so fast they can startle their own reflection? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.